Welcome to CEO on the Go, the show about personal and professional growth for busy leaders like you. I'm Gail Lance, and I'm here to help you think differently, solve big problems, and inspire change. It's tough to do on your own and even with a team, but it is possible. So let's get started. Welcome to this special episode of CEO on the Go. You know, many of us feel like we've been hit by a big wave, both personally and in the business or organization that we're working for. And there's going to be another big wave at some point. Will the next wave sink your ship or will you choose to profit from it? That's the question that my guest Jonathan Brill is asking. He's author of the new book, Rogue Waves. Rogue waves are occurring in business more frequently since small waves are colliding more often as the world gets more connected and moves faster. He'll explain what that means. Jonathan is a renowned expert on resilient growth and decision-making under uncertainty. He has experience as the global futurist at Hewlett-Packard, and he's now managing director of Resilient Growth Partners, where he advises globally on resilient growth strategy and product innovation to clients like Samsung, Microsoft, and Verizon. Jonathan's book covers insights about the ABCs of resilient growth. A is awareness, knowing when and where change is likely to occur. B is behavior change, and that means maximizing resilience and growth when change happens. He explains the rogue method. And then culture change, you know, making sure that your teams are experimenting, that they're mastering habits needed to manage risk and exploit the unexpected. When Jonathan and I were talking offline about why leaders struggle to focus on the future, he mentioned that they often don't have the awareness that they need to or the tools to help them. So more reason for our conversation today and to check out his book, which offers tools and techniques to use to help you not just survive, but profit from radical change. In our conversation, he he also covers some of the key changes that you need to be aware of to help you prepare for the future. So I hope this episode motivates you to expand your thinking, to broaden the lens through which you might be viewing your own organization and the world that it's operating in. There's a lot happening, but the more you learn about it, the better able you'll be to help you and your team ride the waves whenever they hit. Enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Brill. Jonathan, welcome to CEO on the Go podcast. Gail, thank you so much for having me. Good. Well, I know we have a lot to talk about. Your new book is coming out, and I always like helping leaders be more anticipatory. And you and I met when you were first just trying to get some opinions on your book cover. So it's finally here. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a surprise to see how great the feedback has been. I mean, Adam Grant gave a great review the other day. Safi McCall gave an incredible review. The new dean of the Cambridge School of Business, the Judge School of Business, has had great things to say about it. So I'm really excited about kind of where this is all going. Good. Well, let's dive in, pun intended, because we're talking about Rogue Waves, right? The name of your book. I was explaining that a lot of my market are senior executives who want to make sure that they're 
building their teams in the right way and thinking ahead. I'm guessing a lot of people are still sort of in recovery mode after the last big wave that hit. Some are are paddling along, maybe not sure if they should rebuild the boat or get in a new boat. So tell me where you think that people should be thinking right now. Where should their headspace be in terms of, of saying, okay, I want to make sure this doesn't happen to us again, or what do I need to even be thinking about now? I, I think the first thing we should talk about is what is a rogue wave, right? So we look at the future and there are all of these large, terrifying, but manageable trends that are going on, right? We see rising government debt, we see uh, decreased US competitiveness, we see all of these issues. And individually, all of these things are manageable. But what happens is sometimes they overlap and they get out of control. So if you take a look at COVID, for instance, terrible thing, the pandemic, but the issue wasn't actually the disease. This disease isn't radically more infectious than the last two respiratory pandemics of the last decade. So what happened? You know, it wasn't that some government hid information. It wasn't the conspiracy theories. What happened was that over the course of the last 20 years, we put a population the size of Los Angeles into the wilderness uh, around Wuhan. Uh, we did that around China, a population larger than the United States, 400 million people uh, moved into city clusters. We connected that by 16 high-speed rails. And between uh, 2010 and 2019, we increased uh, tourism out of China, moving it from an irrelevant tourism spender to the largest tourism spender on the planet in 10 years. We increased the, 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 ex, the, the movement out of the country by 10 times, and that's not even people coming into it. So this thing that was manageable 10 years ago was suddenly unmanageable today. And that's what a rogue wave is. It's what happens when these individually manageable changes overlap to become something nonlinear, to become unmanageable. And they happen uh, in the deep ocean all the time. We used to think that's the source of, of the term. They, they used to happen. Uh, we used to think that they were kind of sailor's tales, like the Kraken, you know, and, and sea monsters. But it turns out that no, actually about every eight hours in storms in the North Sea, one of these 120 foot waves can pop up out of nowhere. They're happening all the time. The issue isn't that they're rare, it's that the ocean is large. And if you take that metaphor and you tie it to the business world, you know, what's happening what we saw happen with COVID was that the world that was large and disconnected suddenly got a lot smaller and a lot more connected. So these rogue waves that used to not matter, these things that used to happen over there, they now impact everyone everywhere. So I know you have a, a nice framework that helps leaders think through these issues. And I know that their radars are more sensitized to, to looking for trends and catching problems earlier. So can you kind of walk us through your thought process and how you're framing up the three areas that they need to be paying attention to? Yeah. Uh, when I think about radical change and I think about the need for leaders to change their organizations, often the issue isn't that we don't know that change needs to happen. It's that either our organization doesn't have awareness of what's going on on the outside and so that it doesn't want to change, right? It doesn't see the need because, you know, things have worked in the past. So why won't they work in the future? The second is behavior change. A lot of times we look at organizations. A lot of times we look at our organizations as, as people, you know, who have degrees, they're 
they're they're smart, they've they're educated, but the reality is they didn't gain all of the skills you need to make sense of new situations, and and they're often uneven in teams, right? So so some people have really good scientific method, they're really good at reality testing. Uh, some people are able to make sense of systems, right? Maybe they're economists by training or have degrees in finance. Maybe they're really good at project management and uncoupling threats and opportunities. Maybe they're good at generating the range of possible futures, right? Maybe they're finance people. Uh, or maybe they understand how to build portfolios of experiments. And when you kind of take a look at this combination of, of reality testing, observing systems, generating the range of possible futures, uncoupling threats and opportunities, and building portfolios of experiments, that, that adds up to rogue, right? The rogue, what I call the rogue math. And what I believe is that we need to have teams that have that full range of problem-solving skills and, and analysis skills. And because people all kind of live in their own bubbles and their own fishbowls, often they assume everybody has all of the skills they have and that no one, and that they don't need any more. Yeah, that they're all viewing it through the same lens. Right. And the reality is that we need to have all five of those on, on our teams if we want to make sense of new situations. Not necessarily important if we're trying to optimize existing situations, but critical if we're trying to deal with new ones. Right. I, and I know a lot of the organizations I'm working with are trying to get their different uh, people, experts together, departments to work together more collaboratively. So what needs to shift so that companies can do that more easily? A lot of them have that ambition to collaborate, to draw on the different kinds of people here. But what is it that can help organizations do that a little more easily or effectively? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. And I think it comes down to obviously awareness of the problem, awareness of the skills that are required to make sense of new situations and take advantage of them. Awareness at what level? Awareness at senior leadership level, and then would employees need to be aware of what the issues are? How how do you define the breadth of awareness? I I believe at HP what we discovered was it had to happen at all levels. Uh, and the reason is that if you face a radical change, if you face a different thing like a pandemic tomorrow, if your people don't understand the type of change that they're looking at, a they can't give you an early warning right? And B, they can't help you innovate your way out of the situation. And so when these rogue waves hit, if your people don't understand the problem, you're the blocker. And that's exactly the time when everybody needs to be bailing out the boat. You know, and that's, that's exactly the time when it's most dangerous for people to not have context awareness. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about the importance of being able to recover well or become more resilient. So what are organizations doing now to, to build stronger resilience to make sure that, like you said, if they're hit or when they're hit by the big wave, that they're doing what they need to to come back quicker? So I, th I think a lot of this happens at the manager level in terms of how you train your teams and how you think about leadership. And I think that we're seeing this shift and we've been talking about it for 20 years about, you know, how do you create more innovative teams? How do you diffuse responsibility through the organization? How do you, how do you create more proactive innovation? And the reality in a lot of those cases is that when you have people who don't have the context, who don't have those behavioral competencies, 
that they do a lot of innovation, but they run around in circles and you get kind of indigenous innovation that works in their group, but doesn't scale out. So you need to build that awareness, right? Of what are the changes that have to happen? You need to build the ability for people at a more junior level to talk at a more senior level and have the executive judgment that we've typically put at that more senior level. Uh, and then you need to build the culture of you know, sort of bottoms up communication. And, and, and you know, that requires as a manager, building shared mental models, moving from command and control structures to learning and coaching structures, focusing our people on managing predictability uh, to managing uncertainty, trying to moving from trying to, to simplify systems and, and break them down into minimum simple components to recognizing that the value of most of our organizations is actually in their complexity. And that what we want to do is make sure that we're optimizing across the organization as opposed to within the boxes. And then we want to be focused not just on incremental efficiency gains. And I think this is one of the great lies of this, this enterprise modularization that we've seen since the 1980s with Six Sigma and so on and so forth is that companies don't necessarily grow, you know, 6% a year reliably. You know, what we discovered this year is you can have an Amazon or an AMC year, right? An AMC cinemas year, or you can have a Zoom year in the same year. Neither of them had that in their strategic plans. What you need to realize is that you need to be focused not just on incremental efficiency gains, but also exponential efficiency gains. It's really easy to look at a company like, like Amazon and say, oh, wow, they were really well positioned for COVID. They had piles of money. They had the best people and so on and so forth. All of that's true. All of that's true. But my question is, could your organization, can you name an organization that could hire up a workforce, not buy, hire up a workforce, the population, uh, the size of the Ford Motor Company in 90 days and absorb 10 years of growth in 90 days? Could you do that? Because when you look at this world of rogue waves, this world of increasing volatility, that's what happens. And if your competitor isn't prepared and these things happen and you are, that's where the real growth happens. It's not just compound, you know, 6% year over year. It's also that sudden 600% hit. The leap. Yeah. So there is so much uncertainty and leaders are challenged to try to not only help themselves, but their teams through that too. And I know you've done a lot of work helping people make decisions um, in light of the uncertainty. So what questions do you help people think through or, or issues so that they can make those decisions with more confidence when they really don't know what's going to happen. They can, they can try to anticipate, <laughs> but you just never really know. So what advice do you have? One of the things people say to me, it's, it's one of the most popular you know, dings on futurists is, well, you can't really predict the future. And I would argue the opposite, that you can predict the future. It's just not within a range that's acceptable to you. you know, and the question is really, how do you prepare for that broad range? You know, when we take a look at pandemics, eight of the 10 largest uh, publicly held companies in the United States failed to identify pandemics as a risk in their SEC risk filings. This was a completely knowable thing. If you take a look at the, the US government's net risk assessment, if you talk to epidemiologists like Larry Brilliant, which, which I did, this was a rapidly growing risk, right? It wasn't a static 100-year 
pandemic issue, all of these things were adding up to make this a rapidly growing more and more dynamic risk. And so, you know, you can know the future, you can know when the probability of something is increasing. The issue is being willing to look out and see that that's happening. And I think that's the big challenge that a lot of leaders face is they they look at the future and say, it'll be more like the past, by which they mean my past experience and my 20 years of career history, not the past experience of humanity. And it's however many thousand years of history managing resilience and growth. Yeah. I keep hearing you talk about the theme of making sure you understand the full context, the bigger picture. So that's that's one takeaway, I think, from the conversation today is making sure that leaders are really trying to do what they can to see the bigger picture and the larger context of the issues that they're dealing with to help their people do that as well. And recognizing that change is the constant, not stasis. When we take a look at the 20th century, there were 400 business shocks over the 20th century in the United States. That's one a quarter. We spent 15% of our time digging out of recessions and depressions. Uh, We spent more of that digging out of those things and digging out of wars and that's before you start looking at natural disasters and technology change and so on and so forth. And so what what you realize very quickly is that we spent 45% of the time in the 20th century responding to rogue waves. These things, these unlikely events, these chaos moments, they aren't the edge case, they're the main case. And when you start thinking about that, when you start say planning to be disrupted as opposed to just trying to disrupt you start looking at the world in a very different way. Yeah. And so that would play into the ways that companies are developing strategy and looking at both sides. What can they do to disrupt, like you said, and then how can they be better prepared? And how, how do they take advantage of being disrupted? What would be an example of that? Yeah. So my buddies have a farm in Ohio, and uh, I know you're down in Alabama, a pretty agricultural part of the world. They have a farm in Ohio. In the 1980s, they got hit by inflation. They got hit by uh, radical increases in interest rates, uh, the government deciding that it wasn't really interested in supporting family farms as much anymore, was much more interested in industrial and system farming. And then they got hit by a hailstorm, and it killed their 1,200-acre farm. They had to start over. And they decided they were going to start over and they were going to become a really diversified organization. So no one systemic shock uh, could could kill them. So they, they decided that they were going to grow vegetables. They were going to ship them around the world to 800 of the top thousand restaurants uh, in the world. And they thought, you know, hey, no economic shock, no systemic shock is going to kill us. We, we're so serving 600 different crops, not one anymore, and so on and so forth. And then COVID came, snap of a finger, all 800 of their customers disappeared. But over the course of a number of years, they'd been looking at, okay, well, how could we ship to consumers? How could we build a direct to consumer business? The result is that today uh, in 2020, while their entire customer base disappeared, they shipped more vegetables by volume than at any time in their history. And now that their restaurant customers are coming back, their competition that wasn't as well capitalized is is having trouble delivering, their competition that wasn't looking at how to diversify their their markets and how to diversify both geographically and in terms of type and scale of customer, they weren't able to respond. 
And yet these guys are coming back. They're stronger. They're, they're well capitalized. They don't have competition. And their only growth problem is that they can't plant fast enough. So when I take a look at this idea of how do you plan to be disrupted, that's how you do it. You always have you know, back-of-the-pocket opportunities. Uh, when I was at HP, one of our major goals was to figure out, okay, well, in the case of a radical shock like this, very specifically a pandemic, you know, how would we use that to our opportunity? And the, we invested in smart diagnostics technology for, for medical diagnostics. So, so these are kind of remote diagnostics tools. The result of this, obviously, COVID came and we had this back of the pocket opportunity that the company is now scaling and developing. Yeah. And I just wanted to emphasize, I heard you say the question, we just asked ourselves, what would be the opportunity? Which may seem like such a basic question to ask, but I just wanted to reiterate that to, to plant that seed because so many times I see leaders trying to, to do problem solving and focusing on what's not working, but then to, to reframe that and say, where is the opportunity can really open up a whole new way of thinking. And sometimes it takes some practice if you're not used to, to trying to view the world through that lens. I, I think that's absolutely the case. And one of the things that we teach ourselves as managers is how to focus on, on the problem at hand. And the, the question becomes, what if it's a multivariate problem? Right. What happens if you have mass urbanization in China, increased transportation around China, economic growth creates a, a tourist class? You know, what happens then? Right. Like in 2012 and 2015, there, there were respiratory outbreaks in Wuhan. Like this wasn't a surprise that this happened. But what happens then in, in this new environment? And I think it's really useful to, to say, okay, well, what are those? Uh, historical business shocks, for instance, we talked about the 400 shocks, you know, and what would happen if several of them hit me at the same time? And how would they impact my finances? How would they impact my operations? Uh, how would they impact my external environment, right? What would happen if all my customers disappeared? <laughs> and how would that impact my strategy in terms of things like demand and so on and so forth? Yeah, good, good questions to ask. I know we're um, getting close to wrapping up, but you had mentioned 10 different changes that are coming that we need to be prepared for. And I know, obviously, we don't have time to, to go through them, but I was hoping you could speak to one or two that you think might be most relevant or that you wanted to, to put on the radar for people to, to know that these are coming. So have a lookout. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a great question. So I'd like to break them down into social, economic, and technological trends. And so let's uh, start off with the economic ones. What we're seeing around the world is ra radically changing demographics. All of the G20 countries, the 20 largest economies, have aging populations. We're seeing, we've seen the explosion of the data economy, right? And, and you see Uber, you see Airbnb, so on and so forth. And I think one of the real questions is where do they create value and where do they extract value? And What's that relationship with you? Because those types of marketplaces are going to be places where we all play. Automation, right? We talk about automation. We talk about AI. We talk about robots. And we talk about how they're going to impact labor. But what I don't think we talk about is the mass labor shortages that we're going to start seeing. In California, for instance, by 2030, we're going to see a million-person shortage of high-skilled labor. And so, you know, how does that get offset? 
the rise of Asia, you know, the, the explosion of China, Southeast Asia, India, it's going to reshape the nature of markets. And it's also going to reshape the, where innovation happens and who it happens for. Uh, cheap money. So we're seeing this explosion of cheap money to, to try and keep the economy moving over the past year. Uh, it was going on before that. It will continue on after this because governments can't afford to have high interest rates anymore. Uh, we're seeing an explosion of technology. So emerging technologies, you know, they're, they're, they're driving efficiency, but they're also driving social impact. What does that mean? Uh, the closing innovation window. So we're seeing more R&D happening faster, not just in the US, uh, increasingly out of Asia. China's producing more high quality patents, not just patents in general, but more high quality patents that can be protected anywhere in the world uh, than Germany at this point. And it's on a relatively straight line by later in this decade to be out producing the United States. Remixing and convergence. So what happens when all of these things, when all of these emerging technologies start to combine in new ways? Uh, and then what are the social impacts? So we talk a lot in the news about digital trust, right? Do we trust Facebook? Do we trust this? Do we trust that? And I think the real question is a redefinition of what is a public good and what is a private good. And that's going to be a continual conversation as, as the data economy continues as the surveillance state in different parts of the world and the United States too uh, happen. I mean, the, the, the Chinese surveillance laws are very similar to US surveillance laws, by the way. Like it's, we talk about it being bad over there, but it's happening here. Uh, and then we look at new social contracts. What are rights versus what's a regulation? In the United States, we're a little bit deluded about rights being these inalienable things. But the reality is that they change over time as new things become possible. You know, and when the country was founded, three quarters of the, the U.S. population did not have the right to vote. You know, a significant proportion was enslaved. And it wasn't really until the late 19 teens, you know, that women had the right to vote as well. Uh, and so we had more than half the population have, having the right to vote. Well, well, that's pretty significant when we think that rights are consistent. They're not. They change over time. Uh, and so there's this balance between rights and regulation. And as all of these other things shift, I think that's going to shift the, the strategic environment in which companies operate. You know, the last major shift was probably in the 1970s with the deregulation of, of interstate commerce, uh, which really upended just about everything from, from unions to you know, enabling companies like FedEx to exist. I appreciate your your giving the rundown on all of those trends because I think it is important for leaders to keep that front and center as they're doing their strategic planning. I know that a lot of the advice I've been giving my clients is to look at your strategy more frequently now, given the pace of change. Is that what you're what you're seeing, or what you might suggest as well? Like you can't do the five and ten years strategic planning anymore. It seems like that's not as relevant compared to what the environment is calling for today. I would argue the opposite, but in a different way. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I would say that uh, you need to constantly be looking five to seven years out. Well, constantly looking at it, but not trying to lock in a specific plan and not look at it for a while is my point. Uh, absolutely. You should, you should always be looking at your optionality. What's, what's the range of possible futures? How's that window opening and closing? 
And what decisions can I make today that increase my optionality tomorrow? It's a combination of being both more strategic and more tactical. It's not one or the other. And I think that's one of the great mistakes that we've seen over the last uh, 40 years. You see Michael Porter, uh, the great the great professor of strategy at Harvard, basically saying, here's how strategy works. But it assumes that the playing field remains the same, You know that your competitors remain the same, that the you know, that the rules remain the same, that new entrants are knowable, uh, when the reality is that that's not necessarily the case anymore. Things come from above, things come from below, not just from left and right. The second is this idea that you can be agile and iterate and pivot your way into the future. Well, I don't know. It depends how big the wall is and how close you are and how fast you're moving. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so I think we need to be looking up farther out, but at the same time, we need to be more nimble. Good point. Well, I know we've covered a lot, a lot of different issues that you can go much deeper into, especially with your book. So I wanted to let listeners know the best way to find you and to get a hold of your book. Well, my name is Jonathan Brill. The book's called Rogue Waves, Survive and Profit from Radical Change. You can find me at jonathanbrill.com. I write a lot of op-eds. I've got all kinds of tools and, and ideas on the website. And Rogue Waves is available on Amazon. Good. Well, I'm so glad that you could share a few of the insights with us today. Again, very quickly, so I know we weren't able to do a deep dive, but at least people hopefully are thinking, what are some of these ideas that I need to really be more thoughtful about and deliberate about integrating as we're doing our planning and thinking about the future? So hopefully we'll, we'll help people brace for the next wave and be better prepared and recover more easily. So thank you so much for spending a little time and sharing your ideas today. Well, thank you so much, Gail. I really appreciate uh, being on. Good, good. And for everyone else listening in, I hope you have a great rest of the week doing the work that matters to you. Until next time, take care. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, feel free to share this episode with someone else who might benefit or leave a review. Be sure to connect with me on LinkedIn or visit workmatters.com. You might also want to check out the Social Movement TV show a bold new docu-series that brings together entrepreneurs from all over the world to solve impossible world problems. I'll be featured in season two, and you can learn more by visiting workmatters.com forward slash social movement. Until next time, keep growing as a leader and doing the work that matters to you.